You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, which you can also access in text form at cortezcurrents.ca. And today we present a Cortez Currents special feature, Running on Empty, Déjà Vu. In 1949, Newfoundland joined Canada as a new province. Its fisheries then fell under the authority of the central government in Ottawa, the infamous DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or, as some people call it, the Dead Fish Organization. DFO's mismanagement of the Newfoundland fishery, the immensely productive shoal banks of the northern Atlantic seaboard, is now a classic cautionary tale. DFO's bureaucrats ignored repeated warnings from marine biologists, from environmentalists, and from the fishermen themselves. They allowed brutal overfishing of Canadian waters. The high-value fish in those waters at that time were the prolific Atlantic cod, the basis for centuries of both subsistence and prosperity for fishing communities. Larger industrialized boats, more entrants each season, and ruthless exploitation of the stocks ensured that that prosperity was short-lived. Now, to be fair, other nations hammered even harder on the cod stocks of the North Atlantic, but Canada could have done something to protect the fish in its own territorial waters, and it did far too little, far too late. Here's a quote from Wikipedia's history of those years. In 1968, the cod catch peaked at 810,000 tons, approximately three times more than the maximum yearly catch achieved before the super trawlers. About 8 million tons of cod were caught between 1647 and 1750. That was 103 years, or about 25 to 40 generations of cod. The factory trawlers took the same amount in only 15 years. In 1986, scientists reviewed calculations and data after which they determined to conserve cod fishing, the total allowable catch rate had to be cut in half. However, even with these new statistics brought to light, no changes were made in the allotted yearly catch of cod. Many local fishers did notice the drastic decrease of cod, and they tried to inform local government officials. But in the early 1990s, the industry collapsed entirely. The Northwest Atlantic cod fishery has never recovered. And we quote again, spawning biomass had decreased by at least 75% in all stocks, by 90% in three out of the six stocks, and by 99% in the case of northern cod, previously the largest cod fishery in the world. Approximately 37,000 fishermen and fish plant workers lost their jobs due to the complete collapse of the cod fishery. The collapse of the northern cod fishery marked a profound change in the ecological, economic, and sociocultural structure of Atlantic Canada. The moratorium in 1992 was the largest industrial closure in all of Canadian history. Well, it's now 30 years later, it's 2022, and it looks like history is repeating itself. Once again, 
Government agencies allegedly tasked with resource management and long-term planning have instead indulged industry in short-term looting. Once again, a critical resource and an entire ecosystem is near collapse. This time it's BC's forests that have been pushed past the breaking point. Ben Parfit is a resource policy analyst for the BC office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. In a recent hard-hitting article, he documents the mismanagement of BC's softwood forests, the bizarre extents to which governments will go, regardless of their party affiliation, to prop up tottering industries, and the carte blanche that has been granted to multinational companies to ransack BC's forest land for biomass. Ben's article is called Running on Empty, the BC Forestry Crash. It originally appeared on January 18th in the Taiyi, a local independent media outlet. Ben and the Taiyi kindly granted Currents permission to republish his article. In it, he tells us about the ongoing collapse of BC's forestry sector, the gross mismanagement, with some overtones of corruption here and there, which has brought us to this point. So without further ado, here's Ben's article, Running on Empty. The coming closure of a pulp mill in Prince George and the loss of 300 high-paying jobs is just the beginning of what promises to be a new and painful chapter for the province's beleaguered forest industry, which has already lost more than 40,000 direct jobs in the last 20 years. Other communities, including nearby Quinell, will likely soon experience similar economic pain, all because of just one thing, the relentless logging of the province's forests. Consider for a moment the massive Prince George Timber Supply Area, the largest forest administrative zone in British Columbia. Now, this is a landmass larger than the Czech Republic. Most of the readily accessible primary forests in that 80,000 square kilometer landmass are gone, stripped of their green gold by the logging industry in the space of just 50 years. It's hard for many British Columbians who live in cities far to the south of Prince George to even grasp the size of the province we live in, let alone just how much of its natural endowment is gone. For those choosing to look, satellite images provide a good starting point. But a true appreciation comes from being on the land. It's only then that the scale of what has unfolded hits home. On the ground last July, I had plenty of opportunity to see what was happening in the Prince George TSA, including standing in a remote patch of old-growth forest that was just months away from being logged. This patch, west of the community of Fort St. James, was by no means in the remotest reaches of the sprawling TSA, but far enough out that it would take more than eight hours for a logging truck driver to make one return trip to Prince George. I left that soon-to-be-gone forest in the gathering dusk of a summer evening and was on the highway near midnight as I watched an empty logging truck go barreling by. Its red taillights were soon swallowed by the darkness in my rearview mirror. I saw a dozen more such trucks that night, all heading the same way on just one short stretch of road linking Fort St. James with the Yellowhead Highway. While I was tired, I couldn't help wondering just how much more tired those truck drivers were. Where were they going at that late hour? When would their working day end and the next one begin? 
When would the distance from mill to forest become so great that no amount of money would justify paying for such long hauls? Though the mill's paper machines will still operate, supplied by one of Canfor's two remaining Prince George pulp mills, Canfor announced that it was axing pulp production at Prince George Pulp and Paper. Mike Morris, the B.C. Liberal MLA for Prince George Mackenzie, set out the truth about this closure. Those who know me have heard how I predicted this. I have driven extensively through interior wood supply areas, studied the fiber supply in B.C., and I've seen this result coming for the last several years. This should not come as a surprise. We need to change our forestry in B.C. Mike Morris, who has been a trapper, a hunter, an angler for years, has seen more forests than most British Columbians ever will. And he's a strong advocate for protecting what remains of the interior region's once teeming biodiversity. In November 2021, he gave a comprehensive and notably nonpartisan speech in the legislature, detailing decades of failed forest policies that have brought us to today's tipping point. He lives in Prince George, but is intimately familiar with the other community his riding represents, Mackenzie, a town that could be a poster child for the forest industry's overreach. Twenty-five years ago, five sawmills, a pulp mill, a pulp and paper mill, one finger-jointing plant, and a chip plant all operated in that community. Today, almost every one of those mills is gone. Much of the gutting of that forest industry town occurred in the early 2000s, but the closure of those mills and the loss of 1,500 or so jobs didn't stop the looting of Mackenzie's forests. In Canfor's terminology, they right-sized their operations in Mackenzie, but the company is still trucking logs past the mills they closed to those they still own in Prince George or Quinell or Williams Lake or Vanderhoof. Peter was robbed to pay Paul until Peter's pockets were so thoroughly fleeced that Paul had to find someone else to steal from or go hungry. Over the decades, provincial governments of all stripes not only condoned such behavior but actively encouraged it with a suite of subsidies that effectively punted the problem down the road. The evidence has long been clear that a supply crisis loomed, but rather than reduce logging rates immediately, so as to avoid an even worse day of reckoning, provincial governments have for decades elected to roll the dice, keep logging rates artificially high, and gamble that the carnage would happen on someone else's watch. The most significant of those subsidies occurred in the late 1980s and again in the early 2000s, when the governments of the day approved massive increases in logging rates in the name of salvaging economic value from the forests attacked by mountain pine beetle. Canfor and West Fraser, the two largest forest companies in B.C.'s interior, were only too happy to oblige, having built some of the largest sawmills on the planet. Those logging increases lasted for years and resulted in tens of millions of additional trees being extracted, most of which were more than good enough to turn into lumber and other wood products. The companies doing that bonus logging paid the government the bare minimum in fees known as stumpage, which was 25 cents per cubic meter. Uh, one cubic meter is about an average wooden telephone pole in size. Every year since 2006, successive provincial governments also presided over another subsidy program known as crediting. 
Antony Britneff, a former registered professional forester and longtime senior employee in the Provincial Ministry of Forests, charitably calls that program a Ponzi scheme. So here's how it works. Companies that deliver, quote, lower quality wood from a logged forest to a pulp mill or a wood pellet mill get to apply to the Ministry of Forests for credits that allow them to go back into the forest and log an equivalent volume of trees again, with no restriction on what kind of trees are logged the second time around. Magically, those credit trees don't count towards the tallies used by the provincial government to limit what logging companies take from the forest each year. This ceiling is known as the Annual Allowable Cut, or AAC. For a company like Canfor, the credit program meant that it was rewarded for delivering untold thousands of cubic meters of lower-quality logs to its own pulp mills, with even more forests to cut down and more logs to deliver to its sawmills. The provincial government will not divulge how many additional trees have been cut down as a result of the credit program, but we do know it's well into the millions. In the Prince George timber supply area alone, publicly available government data shows that within just one five-year period, nearly 2.5 million cubic meters of additional logs came out of the region's forests as a result of the crediting scheme. Over nearly two decades, these bonus logs helped to prop up local sawmills, pulp mills, and pellet mills alike, but at the expense of further depleting our forests. Then there's the Forest Enhancement Society of BC, a creation of the provincial government. This society has doled out millions of taxpayer dollars, either directly or indirectly, to wood pellet and wood pulp companies over the years, allowing them to underwrite the costs of getting residual wood fiber to their mills. But this has led to economically and ecologically absurd results. Consider the Domtar pulp mill in Kamloops. It recently benefited from Enhancement Society funds that underwrote the costs of delivering wood from logging operations in the Port Hardy area on North Vancouver Island. Without those subsidies, there was no business case for the pulp mill getting wood that had to be barged and then trucked more than 800 kilometers from remote coastal rainforests to the dry belt zone in the province's southern interior. Subsidies like these have made it possible to move millions more logs to the forest industry, but at the expense of an accelerated loss of the province's primary and old-growth forests. The longer these subsidies persist, the deeper will be the pain down the road. An added and significant wrinkle in all this is that as the pine beetle logging began to take off, so did an entirely new wood-consuming sector of the forest industry. Since its inception in 1989, the wood pellet industry in the province has morphed into a major consumer of wood fiber, on top of the already considerable number of logs being consumed by the province's lumber and pulp mills. In the beginning, the first few pellet mills were small and used almost entirely waste wood in the form of chips, sawdust, and wood shavings from nearby sawmills and panel mills to make their product. Today, however, BC's pellet industry consumes the equivalent of 5 million cubic meters of logs annually, and most of its output is controlled by Drax, a UK-based company that burns millions of tons of wood pellets every year to make thermal electricity. 
The rapid expansion of this industry has pitted pellet makers against pulp makers for a finite supply of, quote, residual, unquote, wood chips and sawdust produced at sawmills. But with fewer and fewer sawmills, roughly 100 mills have closed in B.C. in just 20 years, pellet and pulp companies alike have been forced to turn more and more logs directly into either pellets or pulp, something that both the CBC and the BBC highlighted recently in two investigative news documentaries. These documentaries raise questions about whether those logs could be used to make solid wood products instead, something that would generate far more jobs and result in far fewer greenhouse gas emissions than those associated with burning pellets. That patch of old-growth forest that I talked about at the outset of this piece? It was turned over to none other than Drax, to log. As noted by Prince George-based Conservation North, the license giving the company the right to log the forest was granted by the provincial government and gave Drax tremendous leverage to work with sawmilling companies to get huge amounts of wood fiber into one or more of the eight pellet mills that Drax owns or co-owns in the province. The pellet industry's growth has unquestionably intensified pressure on our forests and is contributing to the collapse now underway. Canfor's recent actions underscore this point. Two years ago, another milling operation in Prince George, the Pacific Bioenergy Wood Pellet Mill, in which Canfor was a partner, closed its doors. The mill used the same wood fiber as Canfor's three pulp mills in Prince George. With only so much wood to go round, the decision was made to close the pellet plant. Now one of Canfor's three Prince George pulp mills is gone too, and more mill closures almost certainly await. The big question now is, what will rise from the ashes? The provincial government says one way out of the mess is to get the forest industry to add far more value to the products it creates. In other words, do a lot more with a lot less wood fiber. Doing so is clearly needed. But we've heard this over and over again, over decades, from one government after another. How many more forests must disappear? How many more jobs must vaporize? before our elected leaders stop talking about aspirations and targets and intentions and actually do something. Maybe this time they will. A new, modest $90 million program announced Tuesday by the province to support high-value industries suggests so. But will it be enough? It's hard to add value when most of our best forests are gone. And that concludes this Cortez Current special feature, Ben Parfit's original article for the Taiyi, Running on Empty, the B.C. Forestry Crash. And we'd like to thank Ben and the Taiyi for their permission to reprint this significant piece of journalism. Just a reminder, the views and opinions heard on this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its staff, its membership, or any granting agency but are those of the writer, producer, and guests. And, as always, thanks for listening.